0: can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 6. Well, all of us are dependent upon electricity, and it's something that we tend to take for granted until the power goes out. And then many of the the things that you normally do every day just for regular life become virtually impossible, right? You push the buttons on the microwave and nothing happens and you look at the clock and it's off. You don't know what time it is and your cell phone is dying and you have no means to charge it and you can't call anybody and you can't get on the internet. Just life comes to a grounding halt without power. Well, the same Principle is true in the Christian life. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, a believer is rendered impotent and ineffective in his life for God. But the book of Acts shows us what happens to a church, what happens to a people that operates not out of its own strength, but is instead being filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's important to remember because it's easy to read the book of Acts and think, I'm just, I'm just an ordinary man. I'm just an ordinary woman. Those, those Bible people are in a, in a special class of human being. I'm nothing special. I, I don't really expect to be used by God in, in significant ways at all. If you're tempted to think that, I have one response for you, one name. Stephen. Stephen. We met him last week when we looked at the first half of chapter 6, and we're going to see today and next week that Stephen ends up being used by God for the advancement of the gospel and the progress of the church in incredible ways. Stephen was an ordinary man. He was a deacon in his church. He loved to serve in the background as he headed up the church's mercy ministry to widows meeting the needs of the poorest in his congregation. And yet this ordinary man's ministry will end up being the major catalyst for a huge transition in the book of Acts. Next week in chapter 7, we're going to explore a sermon from Stephen. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and the theological content of that sermon becomes foundational to Christianity's decisive break from traditional Judaism. In fact, while persecution from the Jewish authorities has been escalating, it's been ramping up. What Stephen's going to say is is so explosive that it becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back, and the persecution reaches the tipping point where Stephen is going to become the first martyr of the Christian church. And that's going to end up being the catalyst for the greatest, most explosive missionary expansion of the church. And it all starts with the spirit-filled witness of an ordinary Christian named Stephen, Stephen is a demonstration of how, through the Holy Spirit, an ordinary man, an ordinary woman, an ordinary boy, an ordinary girl can be used by God in extraordinary ways to advance the gospel and God's kingdom in this world. My prayer is that God's going to use our time together to encourage a room full of ordinary people to seek the power of the Holy Spirit that will enable them to do extraordinary things For God. So with that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We are at Acts chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to start in verse 8 and read on down through verse 15. The Holy Spirit says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. <clears throat> and they stirred up the people. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to, to know in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Acts chapter 6, verse 5, which is a little earlier than the text that we just read, but Acts 6 5 tells us that this ordinary man, Stephen, was full of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like for Stephen? Well, one of the ways that uh, we see this is that it looks like extraordinary grace. Extraordinary grace. Verse 8 says that Stephen was full of grace. There was a graciousness about Stephen. I like how John MacArthur explains it. He says that Stephen was full of the grace of loving kindness towards others. Galatians 5 says that two manifestations of the Holy Spirit are kindness and gentleness. Uh, This was the manner and demeanor in which Stephen conducted himself. Stephen was a gracious man. He wasn't obnoxious. He wasn't rude. He wasn't walking around looking for a fight. Nobody could could honestly look at Stephen and say, well, I'm not shocked that people came against him. He had it coming. No, no, nobody could say that about Luke. Uh, uh, or, Or, excuse me, Stephen. But Luke wants us to know right up front, right before all the controversies begin... That, that Stephen's behavior towards everyone, even his opponents, was exemplary and above reproach. And, and we can all learn from this because many Christians lack grace. Many Christians are, are harsh, rude, abrasive, insensitive, careless with their words or with their tweets and posts. They've got theological chips on their shoulders just waiting for somebody to knock it off. They're lurking around on social media eager for a virtual cage match. Ready to shred anybody who disagrees with their position. Ready to to mock people even. Sometimes it's theological opponents. Sometimes it's political opponents, people who belong to that party. Sometimes it's even other believers. And many Christians justify their lack of grace by saying... Well, that's just how I am. That's just how I'm wired. I just tell it like it is. I'm like John the Baptist and Elijah. They were harsh. I tell you what, when God calls you to be a prophet and you're able to call down fire from heaven and you're receiving direct revelation from God, then you can talk like Elijah all you want. But until then, until then, You would do better to heed 2 Timothy 2.24, which says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Graciousness is a manifestation of the, the Spirit's power in your life. To lack grace is a sign that you're not walking in the power of the Spirit, but in the power of your sinful flesh. Now, of course, Stephen's spirit-filled graciousness didn't mean that he was a wimp. Didn't mean he wasn't bold. Didn't mean he was never tough or direct with opponents. As a matter of fact, we're going to see him being very tough on his opponents in the next chapter. Being full of graciousness doesn't mean that you never speak a hard word. But it does mean that harshness isn't your default. You're not quick to pull the trigger. Uh, The default mode of the spirit-filled man is graciousness. Stephen's going to show us that graciousness big time in the next chapter, where he prays for the salvation of his murderers, which which obviously is a supernatural response, right? We, We would not do that normally. But this, this ordinary man was filled with the extraordinary spirit of God, and Stephen was so captivated by the grace of God in his own life. He, he recognized that he himself was a, a wicked sinner, and the only reason he was saved was because of God's graciousness towards him. And when you're really gripped by the grace of God, guess what that does? It, it liberates you from an angry, vengeful spirit, and it empowers you to be gracious towards others. If you struggle with being a a gracious person, that's part of your problem. You don't fully appreciate the grace that you've been given. May you grow in your understanding of that even today. Stephen got it. And as the Spirit powerfully worked through him, he was full of extraordinary grace. But more than that, Stephen was full of extraordinary power. Extraordinary power. The Spirit of God was working through Stephen powerfully. And the obvious manifestation in that power was that, verse eight says, he was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Now here's what's interesting about this. What is it that gets Stephen into trouble? Is it, is it the signs and wonders? No. Nope, you know, nobody ever complains about being healed. That's not the issue. The issue is Stephen's teaching. Now, I'm zeroing in on that because whenever you see in Scripture God giving someone the ability to do signs and wonders, the signs and wonders are never an end to themselves. The signs and wonders always go hand in hand with teaching, with word proclamation. In fact, I I would go as far to say that the signs and wonders are actually subservient to the proclamation. In the Bible, Miracles serve to confirm the teaching as being from God and and illustrate truths about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so I, I think we should conclude that Stephen was not only doing signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit, but simultaneously and more importantly, ministering the Word, witnessing for Jesus in the power of the Spirit. But it's not insignificant that Luke emphasizes signs and wonders as part of Stephen's ministry. I think this has application for us. Not that every Christian should be able to perform signs and wonders if they are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That would be a bad application here. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions a variety of manifestations of the Spirit, everything from helping others to administrative gifts to to being empowered to teach God's Word to more spectacularly dramatic things like working miracles and And Paul's whole point there is is that not everyone is empowered by the Spirit to do the exact same thing. On the other hand, Paul's other point in that chapter is that all are empowered by the Spirit to do something. And I think that's one of the reasons why Luke brings to our attention that Stephen is doing signs and wonders, which which were works up to that point, and this point in the book of Acts, were works relegated to just the 12 apostles. But what was the major theological point that Peter made in his sermon in Acts 2 during Pentecost? You remember what he said? Remember, remember when he quoted from the prophet Joel where God said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on a few people? On some people? No, he says, I will pour out my spirit on what? All. All flesh. In other words, unlike the Old Testament where the, where the Spirit came upon and empowered only a handful of God's people in the New Covenant, we now have what you could call the democratization of the Spirit. Where all of God's people receive the Spirit and all of them are to minister and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 6 is reinforcing this. It's telling us that the apostles don't have a corner on the Holy Spirit. Here, Stephen also is operating in the power of the Spirit, and the evidence of that is the the signs and wonders. Because witnessing for Jesus in the power of the Spirit is for all of God's people. And that might not be a big thing to most of you in this room. That might not be a big, relevatory truth. But there was a time when the Roman Catholic Church dominated Europe, where the common belief was that really it was only the priest that could do ministry. Bibles were in Latin. Only the priest understood Latin. And the ministry of the word was relegated to just the religious elite because the Bible wasn't even in the language of the common people. But the great reformer, John Calvin, preaching from the book of Acts, said this, and I quote, "'Let us learn that we constitute a true church,' when we try our best to increase the numbers of believers. And then each one of us, where we are, will apply all our effort to instructing our neighbors and leading them into the knowledge of God. Because we see them as madmen casting themselves into hell, we must, to the extent we can, prevent them from doing so and procure their salvation. The Reformers were recovering the truth that the Apostle Peter laid down long ago in 2 Peter 2, that all believers are part of a kingdom of priests proclaiming the excellencies of God to the world. And yet even today, nevertheless, there can be a Catholic mindset, even in Protestant churches in regards to ministry, where the attitude is, is, let the professionals do it. Stephen wasn't a professional. He was an ordinary man, an ordinary church member, filled with the Spirit, and he's a reminder that the responsibility and calling to preach the gospel and the power of the Spirit for the advance of the kingdom is for all of us. If you're a Christian, this this is the number one reason why you're on planet Earth. Everything else you do is subservient to that. And many Christians have lost that vision. You're not ultimately here to get a good career, to make some money, to enjoy a nice family to get settled in this world and and to carve out a a nice, comfy life in the Atlanta suburbs. You're here mainly to be an instrument of God to advance His kingdom purposes in the world. You're here to be a witness for Jesus Christ and point others to Him, but not in your own strength. And that's good news. Supernatural power is available for you to successfully and faithfully carry out your mission And that's not a promise that you'll all do signs and wonders. Yes, Stephen was full of power, but in the larger context of Acts, the power is the power not for everyone to do miracles, but to be a witness for Christ to the ends of the earth. Isn't that what Jesus said in Acts 1.8? He said... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's the result of that? What's the result of the power coming on them? Jesus says, And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And you need the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to give you help, to give you the the strength, the words, the boldness to go forth and witness for Jesus. You need to be spirit-filled. Now, In one sense, all believers have the Spirit, right? Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you aren't even a Christian. But in another sense, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that that the believer is commanded to pursue. Ultimately, being Spirit-filled means being Spirit-controlled, where the Holy Spirit influences everything that a believer does. To be Spirit-filled is to walk in holiness, walk in the Spirit, the Scripture says, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, this all begs the question, how? How do you become spirit-filled so that you can be able to have that graciousness that Stephen had or that power on mission that Stephen had or, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the courage that Stephen had? How does that happen? Well, of course, you can and should pray. Remember what Luke wrote in the prequel to Acts, Luke chapter 11, verse 13, where Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So certainly pray, but I think there's more. Just as your appliance needs to be plugged into that receptacle to function as it's supposed to, so must the believer be plugged into the receptacle of God's Word if you're going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You can pray for the filling of the Spirit all you want, and if you cut yourself off from the Word of God, you will not experience that power. I can guarantee that. It's the Spirit working through God's Word that releases God's power in your life. Remember John 15, where... Jesus is talking with his disciples about vines and branches. And when the branch is connected to the vine, what happens? It produces fruit. Jesus says it's like that in the Christian life. We must be connected to Jesus before we can bear fruit in our lives. And, and in that chapter, he equates abiding in him with his word abiding in us, which means we're, we're filled with his word. We're utterly dependent on and being shaped by his word. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, apart from his word abiding in us, you can do nothing. This, this may well be why some of you lack power in your life. Not just power to evangelize and be on mission, but, but just power to really live the Christian life to the fullest slaying sin in your life, walking in holiness, walking in that gracious, Stephen-like spirit. You have no power. You can pray all you want to receive the Spirit's power, but if you will not diligently get into the word of God and let his words get into you, you will not be able to move forward on mission. You will be stuck. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. And if you carefully compare that with the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16, it becomes evident that the way to be filled with the Spirit is to, as Colossians 3 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as you do that, you will experience manifestations of the Spirit's power in your life. Now, this connection between being Spirit-filled and being filled with the Word of God is very important to know because... Sometimes Christians draw a false dichotomy between the Word and the Spirit. You've got, over here, you've got the Spirit people. (laughs) Spirit Christians, right? And they're all about the power and the gifts of the Spirit. And then you've got Word people over here. And they read the Bible and memorize the Bible and study the Bible, but they they know nothing of the Spirit. That's a false dichotomy, y'all. To be filled with the Spirit and to be filled with the Word... Go hand in hand. No spirit-filled person neglects the word. And no one who's really into the word, embracing it, and abiding in it is devoid of the spirit's power. Brothers and sisters, one thing we can say about Stephen is that the word of Christ dwelled in him richly. He was saturated with Bible we're gonna really see that uh, in the next chapter, in chapter seven. He was he was filled with the power of the Spirit because he was filled with the Word of God. So filled, you could say about Stephen what Spurgeon said about Bunyan that if you cut him, he would bleed Bible. I want to be that kind of person, don't you? And for Stephen, of course, it wasn't just a head thing. Instead, the Word lit his heart aflame for Jesus Christ. He was like those disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus who said, did not our hearts burn within us when Jesus opened to us the Scriptures? And next week, when we get to chapter 7, you're going to see how Stephen is able to take the Word of God, the Old Testament, and masterfully connect it to Jesus Christ. Stephen was full of extraordinary grace. He was full of extraordinary power. He was also full of extraordinary wisdom. Look with me at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. The synagogue of the freedmen was evidently established at some point by people who were freed from Roman slavery or their descendants. And they established a synagogue full of freed slaves or freedmen. That word in the Greek is libertinon. Maybe that sounds familiar. It sounds like liberty. And and these Jews were very zealous in regards to traditional Jewish customs mingled with a burning desire to be liberated from, from Roman oppression. Notice also in verse 9 it mentions different groups of people. These groups either were their own separate synagogues or these groups were all part of the one synagogue of the freedmen. The Greek is ambiguous and there's some debate over that. But regardless, all of these people are rising up as opponents against Stephen. You have Cyrenians and Alexandrians, that's that's North Africa. And then you have Cilicians and the Asians, that's Asia Minor, Turkey. But, But what do we know specifically about Cilicia? What was the chief city of Cilicia? Does anyone know Tarsus. Does anyone know what major, major Bible character happens to be from Tarsus? Ah, yeah, I hear it. Good job. A plus. Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Could very well be that Saul, whom we know better as Paul the Apostle, could be that Saul and his family are associated with the synagogue. In fact, who do we see at the beginning of chapter 8 approving of Stephen's execution, holding the cloaks of the men who are killing Stephen, and then afterwards, he goes on a warpath seeking to persecute all Christians? Saul of Tarsus. Folks, it, it may even be that Stephen and Saul were part of the very same synagogue. We're told that folks in the synagogue rose up and disputed or debated with Stephen. It would be kind of like after, you know, a church service. You know, people mill around here. They're talking about theology and things like that. And that's happening. Stephen's telling people about Jesus. And that's just stirring everyone up. And people are debating him. And there's a good chance that Saul was one of the people debating Stephen. And man, what I wouldn't give to see a debate between unsaved Saul and spirit-filled Stephen. I would pay money to see that. Pay-per-view. That'd be amazing. We know Saul was a brilliant man. Trained at the, at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the top Jewish scholar of his day. Remember what Paul, Paul himself, after his conversion, wrote about his pre-conversion life in Philippians? He said that if anyone had, has reason for confidence outside of Christ, It's me circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, he had the resume. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He he had the top credentials of his time. If anyone could have taken Stephen on in a theological debate, it was him. And if I'm a betting man, I'd say that Saul was right in the thick of those debates. But regardless, look at verse 10. These people who are debating against Stephen says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. No one could withstand Stephen. Everyone who debated him could not win. Now, don't don't get the wrong idea. This does not mean that Stephen was the smartest guy in the room probably no one's smarter than Saul. And you probably had some really smart scribes and and rabbis and, and just a lot of IQ coming up against Stephen. But it doesn't matter. Stephen is speaking wisdom as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, probably quite a few of you have experienced something like this, where you find yourself talking with an unbeliever about Christ, and in that moment, you just find yourself able to respond rightly. Scriptures, Bible verses that you hadn't thought about forever start coming into your mind. It's amazing. Doctrinal truths that are, that are relevant to the conversation are coming back to you. And you may not have all the answers, but you have the most important answers. And you realize in that moment, or maybe after the fact, and you're reflecting on the conversation, that the Lord was obviously carrying you through that conversation and giving you wisdom. And you're, and you, and you're just sitting there thinking, This is not me doing it. (laughs) This is definitely not me, in and of myself. I bet you if I I was to take a show of hands, there there, there would be a number of you here who would be like, yeah, that's happened to me before. This is happening to Stephen. The mouths of his opponents are stopped. They can't give any good counter-arguments. He's overwhelming them with wisdom, not his own wisdom. But true wisdom that's found in the scriptures. Again, Stephen knows the word. He, he's speaking back to them God's word. And, and because it's God's word and not his own, his opponents cannot successfully withstand what he has to say. It's very reminiscent of Jesus and his ministry. You know, folks were debating Jesus all the time. And, 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 and they could not withstand what Jesus was saying. And eventually they just got, gave up <laughs> and, and stopped trying to debate Jesus. But, but this isn't Jesus. This is Stephen. Stephen's an ordinary person. Just like you, an ordinary person who's filled with the extraordinary spirit of God. And Stephen here is experiencing what Jesus promised in Luke 12, when our Lord said, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Or Luke chapter 21. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Now, I don't think what he's saying, he's, I don't think he's saying, he's not saying, don't be, don't, just, just be ill-prepared all the time. That's, that's not what he's saying. He, he's saying, don't, don't get caught up in anxiety about this. Why? For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. To the degree that you are a spirit-filled, word-filled Christian is the degree that you'll be able to experience exactly what Jesus is talking about in these verses. And folks, this is why you need to stop being timid about telling people about Jesus. The Bible doesn't expect you to do this in your own strength and wisdom. And I'm absolutely convinced that a teenager who is full of the Spirit and full of the Word of God, is able to, with wisdom, successfully and powerfully witness to a belligerent atheistic college professor with multiple PhDs attached to his name. I'm serious. You don't need five degrees and a super IQ. You don't need to know everything about everything. You need to be filled with the Spirit and filled with the wisdom of God found in His Word. So stop using your perceived lack of smarts as an excuse to not tell people about Jesus. Get out there on mission. He's equipped you with everything you need to do the work of an evangelist. 2 Corinthians 10 says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. exactly what Stephen is doing. It's exactly what God is calling you to do as you go forth on mission for him. But again, not in your own strength and ability, but in the power and the wisdom of the Spirit. So the person who's operating in the power of the Spirit is extraordinarily gracious, has extraordinary power, has extraordinary wisdom, but also someone who is Spirit-filled will experience extraordinary hostility. Extraordinary hostility. Verse 11 Then they secretly instigated men. They 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 stirred people up, they bribed people even, who are saying, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes that came upon him, seized him, brought him before the council. This is again the Sanhedrin. We've talked about them before. This is the the, like the Supreme Court of of Israel, the most powerful Jewish judicial, judicial body in Israel. And they set up false witnesses. By the way, does this sound familiar? (laughs) We've read about this before, haven't we? We know where this is headed. They did the exact same thing to our Lord, didn't they? They set up false witnesses. They say, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. That's the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, They did not pull these charges out of thin air. There's a reason why they're giving these particular charges. We'll get into more of that next week. But here's an important lesson. Very important lesson as you go out on mission for Jesus. Just because you are walking in the power of the Spirit, and you are gracious, and you are speaking wisdom, and you are able to successfully answer arguments with the truth of God, that my friend does not guarantee that people will respond positively. It does not guarantee that people are going to say, oh, you know what, what you're saying? That makes a lot of sense. I get it. I see what you're saying. You have perfectly destroyed my arguments and lofty opinions that were against God. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now I'm going to become a Christian. Very often the response you're going to get will be the exact opposite. John Stott says that when arguments fail... Mud has often seemed an excellent substitute. <laughs> Stephen's opponents will do whatever they can to discredit him, even if it means lies and slander, dragging him through the mud, twisting Stephen's words. But this should not be, ex- be shocking at all. This is exactly what they did to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and remember what Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, don't take it personal. <laughs> Keep in mind that they hated me first. Anyone who is operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, should expect to run into resistance and hostility. That's normal Christianity. Why? Why? Because ultimately, friends, and, and we touched on this a, a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but ultimately the reason why people will not receive the gospel and follow Christ is not due to intellectual reasons. It's not due to well-thought-out you know, well theological arguments. It's ultimately due to heart reasons. It's ultimately a matter of the heart. Friends, the bottom line is that we are all idolaters at heart. And the biggest God we worship is the one we see in the mirror every single day. And we don't want anything to dislodge our old beliefs and our old ways because we want to be in control. We want to be at the center of our universe. And the gospel is a threat because the very first thing the gospel tells you is that there is a center of the universe and you are not it. Jesus Christ is at the center and you deserve eternal judgment in hell for daring to try to remove him from the center and sit on his throne. Well, despite the accusations of his opponents, Stephen wasn't anti-Moses or anti-temple at all. Stephen was pro-Jesus. And he was trying to tell people that the whole point of of Moses, and the whole point of the temple, and the whole point of the law, and the whole point of everything that has been written down before in the scriptures is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point. But again, guess what that does? That puts Jesus in the center. And that is the last thing that any idolatrous, self-deifying rebel wants. And when the stubborn sinner cannot overcome your arguments, they will resort to slander and do whatever they can to discredit you. You're just a hateful person. You're a bigot. You're a homophobe. You're unloving. You're intolerant. Sound familiar? You can't tell me what to do If I want to be a Hindu, so be it. If I want to be a Muslim, so be it. If I want to be an atheist, so be it. If I want to be a Christ-rejecting Jew, so be it. If I, if I, if I, it's all about me and what I want because we love ourselves and our sin and we hate Jesus Christ. We must be at the center and not him. And we are hell-bent, literally, on remaining in the center If you're here as an unbeliever this morning, that's your primary problem. Friend, I'm glad you're here. If you're an unbeliever, you may not be glad you're here. But I'm happy you're here because I love you. And I'm standing here today on the authority of God's word to tell you that this is your primary problem. You are resisting Jesus and you are hostile to him because you don't want him to be Lord. You want to be Lord. You need to know that. But you also need to know that Jesus Christ graciously came into the world not to judge and destroy you, but to receive God's judgment as a substitute for sinners like you, paying the price for sin so that you don't have to pay that price yourself. If you would repent and turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and follow him, you'll be forgiven. And if you're a believer, there's one more thing I want us to consider in closing One more result of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is that, in spite of the opposition and the hostility that you will experience, you will also experience extraordinary courage. Extraordinary courage. Let's not forget that Stephen had just been commissioned by the church to serve tables, to be a deacon in charge of serving widows. If anyone could have come up with a good excuse to not get on the front lines and preach the gospel, it was Stephen. I'm sure that Stephen was very, very busy and he could have totally thrown himself into his deacon ministry and no one would have given him a hard time for it. No one was going to drag him before the council for serving little old ladies. He could have easily just flown under the radar but stephen couldn't just keep his ministry within the confines of the church walls he knew that the great commission was not just for the apostles but for everybody and so stephen ventured from the safety of the church into a hostile world and he began evangelizing and y'all stephen knew stephen stephen's no dummy he knew where all this could lead he knew that the apostles had just been recently brutally flogged by the Jewish authorities. And he knew that just months ago, Jesus himself was nailed to a cross by them. He knew these people, and he knew exactly what they were capable of. But he had courage, and he threw himself right in the thick of battle. The Bible says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. He loved Jesus. He loved people. And he wanted everyone to experience the saving grace and the joy and peace in Christ that he himself experienced. He loved his fellow Jews. And he knew that without Jesus, they'd go to hell, no matter how religious they were. And so he couldn't stop talking about Christ. Look at verse 13. They said, this man never ceases to speak. (laughs) In other words, he won't quit. He never shuts up about this. He he, 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 keeps talking and talking and talking about Christ, even though he knew he was putting his life on the line. And I'm convinced that the reason Stephen was the way he was is not because he's better than you. It's not because he's some sort of superhero. Stephen was an ordinary man, full of the extraordinary spirit of God. And that gave him the courage to do hard things. Remember what Acts 431 said? Right after that persecution was beginning, it said they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and what's the result? And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There's a boldness that comes from being spirit filled. Let me ask you this if you were to talk with a, a friend, neighbor, coworker, stranger about the gospel, would that make you a little nervous? Be honest. Would you maybe have a little bit of fear and trepidation going into that conversation? Let me ask you this. What if Jesus were standing right next to you in that conversation? Would that change things? Would you be afraid then? I bet you wouldn't be. Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit mediates the very presence of Jesus to his people and though and through the Spirit, Jesus is so close to his people that he is said to even dwell within them. That's as close as you can get. When he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always. And when Jesus is truly with you, and you know it, folks, that makes all the difference in the world. Remember Acts 4.13, when Peter and John are staring down their persecutors? And Luke writes that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, ordinary men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so, going back to Acts 6, we have that final verse. Stephen's been seized, he's been dragged before the council, the Sanhedrin, the most powerful judicial authority among the Jews, Stephen standing in a room full of murderous men that hate and despise him verse 15 says gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel that's remarkable there is in Stephen's countenance a remarkable peace a calmness a lack of fear angels aren't afraid y'all angels are bold angels are confident and angels glow. <laughs> there was a visible manifestation of the brilliance of God's glory coming from Stephen's face. You know, there's only one other human in the Bible whose face shone with the reflection of God's glory. You know who that was? Some of you are going to say, Jesus, Mount Transfiguration. Yeah, he shone, but it was his own glory. It wasn't a reflection. There's one other man whose face reflected the glory of God and shone with brilliance, and it was Moses. It was Moses, y'all. It was the very person that the council was saying that Stephen was against. (laughs) And I agree with John Stott, who writes that as Stephen's face is there, brilliance with the glory of God, John Stott writes that, in this way, God was showing that both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen's interpretation of it had his approval. <clears throat> Stamp of approval. What's more, the very reason why Moses' face shone as it did is because Moses spent time in the very presence of God. And you know what? <clears throat> so did Stephen. Not in the same way Moses did. But Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, which mediates the very presence of Jesus to his people. And it is is the assurance of the presence of Jesus through his Spirit that can give ordinary believers like Stephen, like me, like you, the courage to stand for the gospel, even in the face of the most hostile opposition. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see that, the argument there in Hebrews 13? That the reason we can be confident and not have the fear of man is because we know that God will never leave us or forsake us, that, he, that he's right there with us. So what can man do to me? What can man do to you? Well, they can give you a hard time. They can argue against you. They can persecute you. They can kill you. They can kill you. But that's it. That's all. That's the worst they can do. Nothing more. They're about to do it to Stephen. But remember what Jesus said. He said in Luke 21, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. They're about to put Stephen to death, and yet not even a hair of Stephen's head will perish. And Stephen can have courage because he knows something of what the scriptures will say later on, that when you are absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. You are more alive than ever before. You're as safe and secure as you can possibly be. And because Stephen knows this, he will have the courage to say what he's about to say in chapter 7. And it's going to be explosive. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. And we're going to have to save all of that for next week. The Lord's Supper is God's assurance to us that we are ultimately safe and secure in Christ. As we eat the bread that represents his broken body on the cross, and as we drink the juice that points to his blood, we are reminded that he died for us so that we might be his people forever. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. It is separation from the enjoyment of God's presence. That's what hell is. But on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself, those sins being punished in him instead of us, And so the one barrier that separated us from God was done away with, sin. He received the wages of sin in our place, which means that because we have repented of those sins and because we place our trust in his sacrifice for those sins, his payment applies to us. When Jesus had his final supper with his disciples, he took the Passover meal and he turned it into a new covenant meal. And the promise of the new covenant includes not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the presence and power of the Holy Spirit with his people. So as we take this Lord's Supper together in just a few moments, know that it's not just a reminder of our forgiveness. It's a reminder that he is present with us right now through the Holy Spirit that is in us. Again, the separation is over. We are his and he is ours. This is why the Lord's Supper is an ordinance for believers only. If you're trusting the sacrifice of Christ and walking with him, then you're invited to partake of this meal with us and remember the great work Jesus has done on our behalf. If you're not a believer, if you're, if you're not walking with the Lord, then I'd ask you to refrain from taking of this table. Instead, your time would be better spent in observation and reflection regarding all the things that we have been talking about, if you're not a believer, you're outside the family. And so the family meal is not for you. But, but if you would but believe in Christ, you too can be brought into the family. His sacrifice can apply to you and you can enjoy forgiveness of sins as well as the wonderful presence of Jesus through his spirit. So now with that said, I want to invite those who are partaking to come forward now. And once everyone has taken of the elements and brought them back to their seats, then we will all together partake of the bread and the cup. You'll find the bread on the bottom of your cup if you just undo the tab. You can access it that way. So, Paul was involved in the persecution of Stephen, but later on meets Stephen's Savior, and Paul himself bends the knee and casts down his own heart idols and receives Jesus. And Paul has some words to tell us about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He heard some things directly from Jesus about it. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, "'For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.'" So let us eat together now in remembrance of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus offered up his very flesh for our sins. He was consumed by the wrath of God so that we might not be consumed. And we are ever grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul goes on to write that in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us proclaim that together in remembrance of Christ. Father, what a sobering reminder that you give us in your word that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we're reminded by a blood sacrifice that our blood should be shed. Our lives should have been taken. And yet the life of your son was taken. Thank you for the glorious truth that... Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. Thank you that we are forgiven and we are free. In Jesus' name, amen.